This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's Bigger Question, is there life after life? We're asking this question today to Dr. Steve Brady. Steve is in Australia at the invitation of Belgrave Heights Convention. Steve is Principal of Moreland's College, a theological college in the UK. He is an author, international speaker and claims to have an unrepentant attachment to Everton Football Club. Steve, welcome to Bigger Questions. Thank you. Now Steve, this could well be my favourite Bigger Questions uh, interview and you're possibly my most favoured guest because you support Everton Football Club, which is also the English Premier League team that I have passionately supported since I was a boy. So Steve, but why Everton? Why do you support them? Is it because Australian soccer legend Tim Cahill used to play for them? Well, the truth is, uh, in Liverpool, the place itself, there is a place called Everton. And I was born in the district of Everton. And all Evertonians know there are two great football teams in Liverpool, Everton and Everton Reserves. Right, yes. <laughs> and uh, and so, so, yep, your favourite moment as an Everton supporter? I mean, it's been a... My favourite moment yes. is definitely the 14th of May, 1966, as everybody should know. Because Everton were losing in a cup final 2-0. And I was there crying my eyes out as a young boy and asking God if he was there to please let Everton score. It's a long story, but the key moment was when a guy called Derek Temple received the ball and ran about 30 yards and hit this shot that nestled in the back of a Wembley net, and we were suddenly winning 3-2, and I was engulfed and hugged to death by people, thankfully, I've never met since. <laughs> that was the greatest time, Everton winning the FA Cup in 1966. That was the, the biggest highlight for Everton, right. certainly. Yes, yeah. Well... To kick off bigger questions, we do like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Today we're asking Steve Brady about life after life. So I thought you'd, I'd test you, Steve, on how much you know about near-death experiences. Now, do you feel qualified at all? Have you, have you ever had a near-death experience? I personally haven't had a near-death experience, except usually as a joke when I'm watching Everton. <laughs> okay, right. Well, there's two questions, both multiple choice. Question one. Sarah Brottingham from South Yorkshire in the UK suffers from a rare combination of disorders, which means that sometimes her heart stops beating and her blood pressure plummets. How many times was she pronounced clinically dead in 2012? Was it A, zero, you just don't die and come back to life again? Was it B, once, we all die just the once? Was it C, nine, she, like a cat, had nine lives? Or was it D, 36, she was pronounced clinically dead 36 times in 12 months. Well, I think I'd better go for 36. That sounds an odd number, even though it's an even one. So let's go for 36. Well, that's a good one because it's the right answer. Oh, well, yes. there we go. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's a somewhat remarkable story. Um, she needs to be inflicted with pain to shock her to come back to life. Um, she also says that she gets asked a lot about an afterlife and she claims that there's definitely no bright light. Everything just goes black. Now, Steve, do you think it'd be hard to plan holidays or even go to work if that you died every 10 days? 
I think it would be exceedingly difficult, especially if you were trying to get some money back on your insurance policy because <laughs> you cancel the trip. That's right, because you're... Uh, um, yeah, you're kind of like you're dead again. That's right, yeah. yes, yeah. that's right. Well, I think they probably only let you do that once or twice. That's right, yeah, not 36 times in a year. But it's a true story. Apparently she has clinically died 36 times in a year. Okay, question two, you're doing well. In a 2010 book called The Boy Who Came Back From Heaven was published about the story of a six-year-old Alex Malarkey's spiritual experiences of meeting Jesus and entering heaven during the two months he spent in a coma following a car crash. What happened subsequent to the publication of this book? Was it A, the book was a complete fizzer, selling only 17 copies, bankrupting the publisher because no one's really interested in tales of life after death? Was it B, the book was so persuasive that atheist Christopher Hitchens admits to being convinced by it and became a Christian before he died in 2011? Was it C, the boy Alex Malarkey recanted and said that he didn't go to heaven and the whole thing was made up? Or was it D, the book made Malarkey a star and he even featured as an extra in Justin Bieber's hit music video, Believe? So which of those happened subsequent to the publication of this book? I think he became a star. You think he was D, you think he became a star? I think so. Well, he didn't. I'm no. sorry. <laughs> sorry uh, he's, he's recanted of the whole lot. He did, yeah. The correct answer was actually C. The boy Alex Malarkey recanted and said he didn't go to heaven uh, and made the whole thing up. Whilst the book sold over a million copies and was adapted into a TV movie, in 2015 he released an open letter confessing that the entire account of his journey to heaven was fictional and that he asked the book to be removed from stores. So you didn't buy a copy? No, I missed that one, thankfully. Right. Saved my yes, money. Yeah. Well, Steve, you didn't die here on stage today because you got one of our smaller questions right. You passed. Big round of applause for Steve. Yeah. So, Steve, there's a deep attraction to, yet suspicion of, stories of near-death experiences like Alex Malarkey. So why do you think this is? Well, one of the reasons I think we have uh, an excess now of stories about uh, near-death experiences is because of modern anesthesia and resuscitation. One of my friends is a consultant anesthetist. They said, uh, anesthesia is very easy. Anybody can do it. The real trick is resuscitation and bringing people back once you've knocked them out. <laughs> yeah. so, so modern medicine itself has helped with bringing folk back from kind of that nether-netherland of uh, between life and death. Yeah. But actually, historically, there's been quite a lot of work on stuff right from the Middle Ages or whatever about near-death experiences. So these have been tracked uh, long before our modern media have got a hold of a near-death experience story. Um, so, for example, in 18th century New England, a preacher had one of these classic near-death experiences. You can read about it. It was published 250 or more years ago, and it is a classic near-death mm -hmm. account. So what happened? Well, he, he was uh, conversing with his brother in Latin, as, as one did. <laughs> he was about to be buried when somebody thought there was a little twitching about three days later. Right. And uh, they warmed up the body again, and about six weeks later or something, he recovered. And over the next year, he recovered all his vital powers. And his experience, subjectively, was that he felt he'd been in the presence of God right. for about 10 minutes, even though... On Earth, he'd been out of it, as it were, out of the body. He fell for quite a while. For quite a while. So that's an 18th century illustration, but they've run through the ages, really. So, it's a bit, in some ways, so it's, it's not a new phenomenon. No, it's not. But, but do you think near-death experiences provide evidence for life after life? Well, I think, like a lot of these things, it's a, it's a two-edged sword. It can prove too little or too much. One thing is 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 clear, I think, from 
the stuff I've read. And at one time I was a research student and this was kind of on the hinterland of what I, I was looking at. There are some things that would fit in with, with the geography as I understand it of what the Bible teaches. And there are some stuff that is just, you know, kind of out there. And maybe it's because of what's already in your heart, what you might be expecting. It might just be a form of wish fulfillment or whatever. So it's not knocked down evidence by any means. However, it is a fascinating area. And a lot of work has been done, even scholarly and clinical. Um, uh, at the Maudsley Hospital, for instance, in London, they've had a research unit on near-death experiences. Mm. Um, and the guy who ran it, uh, was very convinced about the the facticity of folk having real experiences be, when mm. when quote the brain or the heart are no longer mm. functioning. Now, American actress Alexis Arquette once said, "If there is life after life, it's whatever you expect it to be." Now, is this realistic? No, I don't think so for one moment. Um, but isn't your new death experiences kind of, as you said before, confirm something of what we already know? So what about life after life as well? Well, for some folk, it confirms what they already know. For other folk who've maybe had no religious background at all, um, it, it actually is a challenge to their whole thought world. I knew a guy in Liverpool. He was the first person I met when I was a teenager who'd had a near-death experience. He was a uh, an ex-military man, he was what we call in Liverpool a real hard nut, a real man's man. Uh, Bugsy Moran, his name was. You looked at him sideways and you didn't do it twice. And he had this brain tumour, everything was done. He, he was a godless and foul-mouthed kind of character. And uh, his story was that he, he met God. And it completely changed his life. He came back, he was a different man. Now he had no expectation of that kind of thing happening whatsoever. And there was a philosopher called A.J. Eyre. He, um, he had a near-death experience. He, he, in philosophy, he had this thing called the verification principle. It's all kind of rather highfalutin stuff. But towards the end of his life, I understand, he had a near-death experience. And he, he couldn't put that in to the worldview that he'd espoused that we're here today and we're gone tomorrow. So the evidence is ambiguous and ambivalent. That's the best you can say. Well, though Kyle Kalinske, host of the atheist radio show Secular Talk, once said, it's much more likely that we just don't know what happens when we die because no one's ever really, really, really died and then come back to life. Because once you die, by definition, you can't come back to life. Now, Kalinsky's probably right at one level, you say, because we can't really know... Uh, what happens after we die unless someone really, really, really does actually die and then comes back to life. So you'd agree with that? I, I wouldn't straightforwardly agree with that, no. Uh, just on the evidence of near-death experiences, there was okay. a, uh, a captain in the, uh, the Church of Army, as it's called, and he has his own death certificate. He, he came back to life after about two days when he was uh, lying in a mortuary. I mean, literally, you might say, he woke up and found himself dead, as it were, <laughs> or now alive. Right. And so he actually has his death certificate. Now, of course, you might say, well, well therefore, they couldn't, by definition, be dead. Yes. But then you're pushing a definition. What, what is clinical death? What does it mean to be dead as everything's closed down? Um, and of course, as a Christian, yet people don't come back from the dead, do they? Unless you believe in the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And the resurrection is where someone really, really did die and then... Well, that's, that's what the Christian faith asserts. Yes, yes. Now, you mentioned the Bible before and the resurrection. Now, today's big question is, is there life after life? And the Bible does offer an answer. But before we look at what the Bible says, 
we're interested to hear about why you think the Bible is worth following. So, Steve, can you tell us what convinced you to become a Christian believer? You mentioned something before about it was connected to Everton Football Club. You want to tell us a bit of the story? Well, I don't come from a church-going background, um, but when I was 14, somebody bought a Bible for me for a Christmas present. I didn't think of reading it. And one of my dad's friends from one of the local pubs was around and said, hey, Tommy, I got this Bible for Christmas. Look at this. And he picked up this little King James Bible and he said, you know, Steve, that's one book I'd like to read from cover to cover. And suddenly I had a, a whole plan hatched in my mind. Well, maybe if I read a few chapters every day, God will help me and help Everton. So I used to read three chapters a day. I used to double it at weekends. And then I got to the Psalms and I thought, oh, these are short. I'll read you know, five a day. I was on five a day before I realized that, that it was good for you, <laughs> at least uh, when it came to fruit and veg. So I used to read then five a day and then 10 at the weekends until I got to Psalm 119. It's got 176 verses. I thought it was never going to finish. <laughs> but this scheme for me worked brilliant because I got right through the Bible in about seven or eight months. Yeah. But more importantly for me at that point, I've mentioned the key date of the 14th of May, 1966. It was working well because the more it seemed I read the Bible, Everton were on this mazy run to the FA Cup final and we won the, the Cup. So when I'd been through the Bible once, what happened when Everton were 2 nil down there in that game? Well, I was praying, God, I've read your Bible every day, and if you, you let Everton score, and it kept going up, I was bartering, you know, <laughs> 50, 100, I'll, I'll, I'll say the Lord's Prayer 250 times right through. Do you know how long it takes to say 750 Lord's Prayers? It took me all the way home on the coach, 200 miles from London to Liverpool. But I, here's a big thing I think you learn. If you strike a bargain with God, you might get more than you bargained for. So I started reading the Bible again. I thought, this is great. You know, we won the cup. Next season's coming. Maybe we'll win everything, including <laughs> the league, you know. And as you, you know, I was 14, 15, so I started reading the Bible again. And it was second time round that, I can only put it this way, the fear of God entered me in the sense that I realized, as I read through these Old Testament laws, that, that I was in trouble, not, not, not before people. I wasn't outwardly wicked or whatever, fairly, you know, ordinary kid. But I realized in a holy God's sight, I was far from perfect because he knew my thoughts. Because if you only had three bad thoughts a day in a year, that's over 1,000. In 15 years, that's 15,000. And some of us, well, we, we've almost lost the count, you know, mm. on just that. And if God's perfect, then he knew what was in my heart. So here I am in, in inner city Liverpool, lying on my bed one day and thinking, where do I get a lamb to sacrifice for my sins? Because that was what I could see in these Old Testament laws. You brought a sacrifice, you put your hand on it. Symbolically, the guilt went to this innocent victim and you went free. And I'm lying there thinking, where do I find a lamb? Here, we haven't even got a garden, never mind any greenery, to speak. I looked at the cat once or twice. It's only a joke. <laughs> you know, whatever. And, um, and then eventually, somebody invited me to play football, football mad city, football mad character. And it was there in this youth group that I heard there is a Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who was the fulfillment of all those Old Testament pictures and prophecies. And suddenly the lights came on. And I thought, ah, Jesus is the answer. I need him to forgive me and him in my life. And that's, that's what brought me to Christ. But I'd read by this time the Bible through nearly twice. Mm, mm. Wasn't the, the fear of death was also a big thing for you oh, as massive. a child as well? Oh, yeah, that's down to my mum. From a young kid, my mum would say to my sister and I, when I die... Don't stick me in a box in the ground. 
Oh, don't die, Mum, don't die. No, listen, when I die, stick pins in me and make sure I'm dead. She didn't want a near-death experience because I don't want to wake up in my coffin. I mean, that really freaks out a five-year-old's head, I can tell you. <laughs> and, and she was so frightened of dying. So I used to kind of think as a kid, well, what happens when you die? Mm. Today's big question, is there life after life? And the Bible itself helps us answer this question. In the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, written in the 50s of the first century AD, the Apostle Paul writes in chapter 15, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, Steve, uh, one of the top what is Google searches for 2017 in Australia was what is Good Friday? A lot of people don't really know what Good Friday is about, but the meaning is actually found in this passage. Um, can you explain it? It's good for us. And of course, quote unquote, it was bad for Jesus. It was God's way of dealing with this issue of, of, of our sinfulness and our estrangement from God. And a lot of folk kind of think, oh, that, that sounds so immoral. You know, I've done something wrong and God punishes this innocent victim in my place. That, that doesn't seem fair. But that's really not the way biblically it works. If I were to owe you $1,000 and you'd be foolish to allow me to me in the first place, and I come to you and I say, look, I'm really sorry. There's just no way I can, I can pay this debt. And you very graciously say, well, you know, you, you Brits, you need all the help you can get, you know. Tell you what, Steve, I let you off. I say, pardon, I forgive you. What? So you're letting me off the debt, yes. If you let me off a debt of $1,000, who's paid the bill? Well, you have. The one who forgives pays the debt. And at the heart of the Christian faith is not the idea that God up there is pretty angry and he's punishing a Jesus who's such a nice, nice person, probably English, really, you know, very nice fellow. No, no, no. It's God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The one who died on the cross was God for us, mm -hmm. God in our shape and size. And so the cross is something that happens in the heart of God as well as in space and time. Mm. And therefore, as the prophet Isaiah put it, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But it is God himself paying the price. Mm. But then he didn't stay dead, though, and this is what the other part of the Easter weekend is about on Easter Sunday. The claim is that Jesus didn't actually stay in the tomb or didn't stay dead. It's been interesting that the resurrection has been so sifted by all sorts of minds. Uh, the early church believed in the resurrection for two reasons. One, because the tomb was empty, but not quite empty, because the grave clothes were still there. How could they be there if somebody had stolen the body? You mm. don't unwrap a body yeah, in whatever. Yeah, yeah. And they met the risen Christ. Mm. And it's not like, well, you know, Jesus, a bit like, you know, maybe Elvis is still alive or something, you know, or he, he may be dead somewhere, but, you know, he lives in our hearts. That would never wash for the first century definition of what resurrection was and is. So how does Jesus' resurrection then help us answer the question if there is life after life? Well, I think it answers the question on three levels for us. We all have a trilemma, don't we? We are creatures of a past, a present, and a future. We, we, we can't avoid that. That's how we're wired. And, and the gospel of Jesus offers me something for my past. Uh, the author of the Narnia series, C.S. Lewis, was once on an Any Questions program and asked this question. Professor Lewis, what can Jesus Christ give me that no one else can give me? And I want the answer in one word. And quick as a flash, this brilliant, brilliant mind just said, forgiveness. What do I need for my past? I, I need pardon. 
And, and the truth is, in the present, uh, we're all full of good intentions. But a bit like sometimes Scotty from Star Trek used to put it when they wanted some extra warp speed. And he'd say things like, we've now got the power, Captain, which translated into English is, we're rather sort of denuded of the power we need to get out of this particular predicament. <laughs> we've now got the power. But actually, Jesus Christ, if he's the living Lord, has the ability to come into our lives and empower us and I see that worked out with the churches I've served, with the college I'm at, characters who've been the wrong side of the tracks, prison records, and are now living new lives because Jesus Christ is alive and by his spirit lives in them. And then what about the future? I don't know if you had it here for a while. There used to be the Orange Phone Company. Did, I don't know if you had them in yeah, Australia. They and Sorry. they had a great one-liner for it. The future's bright. The future's orange. Of course, it didn't work very well in Ireland, parts of Ireland, because the orange and the green was highly politicized, <laughs> so they didn't win anything there. But the future's bright because the future's Christ. Because if he has conquered death, then everlasting life, which he offers, is not a pipe dream. Why should it be thought incredible by any of you, says the Apostle Paul, speaking before a king, that God should raise the dead? And if God has raised the dead, then Jesus can say, because I live, you shall live also. My friend, the hematologist, was not a Christian in his early 30s. He was in deep despair as a research scientist, a fine medic, dealing with CLL cancer, because the majority of his patients died. Long story short, he got to a church, and he, the church has eventually served, but about 30 odd years or more ago, and he didn't realize it was Easter Sunday. And a man who'd invited him to church, who he was looking after with his, his leukemia, had died. And he was immediately struck by the sense of assurance that this man was now with Christ. And then the, the preacher that day spoke on the words of Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And Jesus then puts a question at the end, and he said, of all those hundreds of people packed into that church on that Easter Sunday morning, my friend Terry said, the preacher pointed right at me and asked the question Jesus asked, do you believe this? He said, and in that moment, I knew two things. One, I had the answer to death that was depressing him. Mm -hmm. And two, if this was the answer, then everything was different, and I needed to come to Christ, which mm -hmm. he did. Paul concludes and provides a potentially profound thought in verse 20 where he says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So in some ways, if there's life after life, Jesus in some ways is the, f what, is it, what does it mean for this first fruits thing? Well, the first fruit is that which guarantees the rest is coming. So Christ being raised from the dead becomes the, the model. My, my dad was a bus driver and every so often the bus company would have a, uh, an experimental bus, the one, two and three, E, one, two and three, and so a bus would turn up, and I'd sometimes go in as a little lad, my dad, and they were trying out this bus, and then somebody in the engineering side would say, that's the model we want. That, and suddenly hundreds so that, that of the, would become, that was the first the fruit. The first fruit, the model. And then the that was the model for the rest. Right. So the Bible says that it doesn't yet appear what we shall be, but when Jesus appears, we should be like him. Mm. We'll be raised deathless. Yes, so in some ways, to know that there's life after life in many ways is mirrored on the resurrection of Jesus. Well, well it, it, the whole thing is not mirror on it. it it's absolutely foundational. Mm. Because if Christ be not risen, says 1 Corinthians 15, we'd of all people most to be pitied. 
Um, in other words, if it isn't true, then to be really honest, Christians need their heads examining. They're, they're idiots. And I've heard some folks say, oh, well, it really doesn't matter if it's true, we're still having a great time. Just try that in the first century where Christians were being thrown to the lions and being tarred. Imagine saying to your kids, hey, kids, I don't know if this Christianity stuff's true, but tonight, you know, we're all going to become lion bars or something, you know, mm. or they're going to set us on fire. But even if it isn't true, we've had a good time, haven't we, kids? Let's hear it for you. Forget it. It just doesn't work. Mm. So then what difference has this resurrection account made for you? Because you've had a particularly challenging experience of death recently in your life. Do you mind sharing about that and how the hope of the resurrection may affect it? Um, my wife of uh, 42 and a half years, uh, very early on in our marriage, began to exhibit symptoms that uh, neurologically that we couldn't explain. Uh, best part of 40 years ago, we eventually got a diagnosis that she had um, a, a thing called multiple sclerosis, which bit by bit ate away at her, although we were blessed to have two children. and. For the last best part of a decade, she'd been in full-time care for her needs, although you know, still quite with it. But just uh, in November, she went into hospital and she had profound renal failure. Uh, she would regularly say from her wheelchair, I can't, as a Christian, I can't wait to get my new body. She lived in the hope of the resurrection. And on Saturday the 30th of December, just after Christmas, which we were able to spend with her, uh, in my arms, I had this death gurgle, and holding her hands, I simply prayed a prayer from uh, the Christmas story from Simeon, Lord, let your servant depart in peace. And she just slipped away and slipped over, I believe, into the presence of God. She died so wonderfully, peacefully, without any pain. And what we're going to put as her epitaph are three very pregnant phrases that I saw on a grave over 40 years ago, because they sum up my wife and really the Christian position. In Christ, for Christ, with Christ. My wife, by faith, came into Christ to trust him as her Lord and Savior, finding forgiveness and peace with God. She was for Christ in life, in her limited uh, energies and anything else. She lived for Jesus and was my so right-hand person, and I was her right-hand person for over 40 years of marriage in Christian ministry and now she's with Christ. And, and the tragedy is a lot of folk would like to, if there is a heaven to gain, they'd like to be with Christ, but they're never for Christ because they've not got into Christ. And the great challenge of Easter is to say, but here's the great news. As George Bernard Shaw said, the statistics on death are most impressive. One out of one people die. Mm. What happens then? The great unknown. And therefore to be in Christ by faith, to trust him, the resurrection and the life, to live for him and by him and through his power is the guarantee of being with him when we leave this mortal coil. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. Obviously, very personal story, but it's obviously the hope of the resurrection obviously makes a massive difference to Absolutely. how you live your life. The best is yet to come. The future's mm. bright. The future's Christ. Mm. So, Steve, wrapping up, is there life after life? If someone dies, says Job, will they live again? I think there's only three answers. No, maybe yes and because of jesus my answer is yes let me leave you with the bible's answer to the big question is there life after life from 1 corinthians 15 20 but christ has indeed been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep 
I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, Dr. Steve Brady. Enjoy Bigger Questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash biggerquestions.